But for now, let's have a look. I'm going to be reading from the ESV and Romans chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 16. Feel free just to listen, or if you have a Bible, uh, do follow it as we go through. So it says this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the richness of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Well, do keep that uh, passage open. We're going to be having a look at uh, together. And just to say, as we um, go any further, uh, there is an outline of where we're going, um, which is a PDF which you can download from the uh, info box on the um, uh, on your YouTube uh, page and some people like to use that uh, to sort of make notes or to help them follow the argument of where we're going but if it's not useful to you do feel free to ignore it. Also at the end of the um, sermon there'll be an opportunity to ask any questions uh, or make any comments about uh, what I've said or about passage or implications. So have that in mind as we go through and you can jot things down and then I'll explain how that works when we get there. Well, before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word together now. As your people, 
please would you help us to listen to it, to trust it, and to obey it. And we ask this, that you might be seen amongst us as the God who is truthful, good, and rightly sovereign over us. Amen. If there is one issue that is dominant in the New Testament, it is the issue surrounding the Jew and the Gentile. It's here in the book of Romans. It was anticipated in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 where Paul introduced the idea that the gospel is the power of God for all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And having explained the need for this salvation for the Gentiles, for they're under the judgment of God, for their idolatry, now in Romans chapter 2, Paul begins to argue that the Jews are also under the same judgment. And it's an argument that we'll spend several weeks on and we'll only reach its conclusion when we get to chapter 3 verse 9 with the charge that both Jew and Gentile are under the judgment of God. The problem for the modern reader though is what do you do with that? Because that really is not our issue. We don't think in terms of Jew and Gentile today. That's to say that the issue concerning Jews and Gentiles is not a present concern for us. Well, one approach is to try and make the issue more relevant. And so when we read Jews, we're to read religious people. And when we read law, we're to read religious books and writings. In this way, Romans 2 becomes an attack on religious people who look down on other people and have a false security in their religious books and writings. Now, this sort of thing preaches particularly well in Anglican churches, where empty religious pomp and ceremony can be found. Paul's argument, then, is that you, religious, holy-than-thou people, do the same things as everybody else, and therefore under the same judgment. This approach will not do. On the one hand, it causes more confusion than help. Take, for example, the book of Acts. The key verse, if you remember, is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you'll receive power. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This verse lays down a very particular pattern of witness of the gospel being preached first to the Jews in Jerusalem and then to the Gentiles. With the conversion of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and the mission to the Greeks at Antioch in Acts chapter 11, Gentiles begin to join with the Jewish disciples in acknowledging Christ as Saviour and Lord. In this way, the book of Acts describes a transitional phase 
in redemptive history, from the gospel being preached first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Now, if you read religious people for Jews, then you'd get this movement from the gospel going to religious people first and then to non-religious people, which really makes no sense to the book. Uh, for the Gentiles in Athens, for example, Acts chapter 17, are really quite religious. If you read religious people for Jews, seemingly short-term gains turn into long-term confusion. What is telling about this approach is that this is in some ways a man-centred reading of the Bible. Fallen humanity has a tendency to be egotistical and to make everything about ourselves. An attempt to make the Bible relevant becomes an attempt to make the Bible all about me, about us. It is a peculiar approach because it can lead to a certain collusion between the preacher and the congregation. The congregation get to hear sermons all about themselves and the preacher gets to hear how wonderfully applied their sermons are. A crucial question then as we go through the book of Romans is just what is the significance of the Jews? If they don't represent the generic religious person, who do they represent? Well, when it comes to dividing up the world, there are a number of ways that it has historically happened. We saw back in Romans chapter 1 verse 14 that the ancient way of dividing the world was between Greek and barbarian. Here it's a cultural distinction between those who consider themselves sophisticated and those who are not. Other ways we see in history are white people and black people. Distinction here being on human physical characteristics. Or Western and non-Western. The distinction here being at least at some level geographical. When it comes to dividing up the world, the Bible divides it as Jew and Gentile. Well, actually, the Bible starts with no division. All are created are descendants of Adam. All of us are created in the image of God. But it's not long into the storyline of the Bible until this distinction emerges between Jew and Gentile. Well, what then is the significance of the Jew? In the world of the Bible, the significance of the Jews is that they were the ones who received the promises of God. Recall that Romans chapter 1 begins with these promises in view and that they have now been fulfilled. So Romans chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
The promise of the Christ has come from the Jews. Paul then says in chapter 1 verse 16, for the Jew first and then the Gentile. Chapter 1 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's to the Jew first because he is first and foremost their Christ and comes as the fulfilment of the promises that were given to them. The significance of being a Jew is that they're the ones who were given the promises of God. That is to say that to be a Jew is to be privileged precisely because they received the promises of God. It wasn't the Gentiles who received the promises, but it was the Jews. Now, to be fair, the promises didn't start with the Jews, didn't begin with them. And Paul will explore the implications of this with regard to Abraham in Romans chapter 4 and Adam in Romans chapter 5. I mean, the promises, they can be traced uh, back to Genesis chapter 3. So that the full fulfilment of these promises will have implications beyond the Jews to the whole world. But it is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The Gentiles are there but it was through the Jews that the promises were received and fulfilled. To replace Jews with religious people makes it a bad word. The category of Jew then becomes all those who are nasty religious people. But actually in the Bible, to be a Jew is to be a person of privilege because to you will be given the promises of God. One of the concerns about entering the storyline of the Bible and reading it in a historical way and understanding the Jews as those who receive the promises of God is that it's irrelevant because, well, we're not in it, or at least not the centre of attention. Now, actually, there will be a very important implication for us that I mentioned at the end in the form of a how much less argument. But even before we get there, the discipline of entering the storyline of the Bible actually help us to view ourselves the way that God views us. Rather than think that we're at the centre of the storyline of the Bible, we are not. God is. That is to say, this whole approach encourages a God-centred reading of the Bible rather than a man-centred reading of the Bible. And that is a good thing because it is the reality. Well, at this point, we are ready to trace the argument of chapter 2, verses 1 to 16 through. And Paul develops his critique of the Jews in these verses in three paragraphs, which were taken turn. The first paragraph is uh, verses 1 to 5. Let's read again verses uh, 1 to 3. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. 
For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? One of the dangers of passing judgment on others is that we can create a fiction about ourselves, a distorted view of reality where we will escape God's judgment. In verse 1 it talks about you who pass judgment and verse 3, you a mere man who pass judgment. And in contrast in verse 2 we have the judgment of God and again at the end of verse 3 the judgment of God. The fiction occurs because when we pass judgment we assume the role of judge. The implication is that I will escape judgment because I am the judge. But who is Paul talking to? Who is the you of verse 1? Well they're not explicitly identified until verse 17 as the Jew. And whilst verses 1 to 2 could apply to anyone, verse 4 makes best sense if the passage is directed against the Jews. Chapter 2 verse 4 or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The language of receiving the kindness and forbearance and patience of God is reminiscent of the way that the Old Testament encourages God's people to regard their God. And this kindness of God towards the Jews has already become a source of false security for those who are not living in faithfulness to God. And it's this assumption that Paul, you know, in agreement with the prophets, calls into question. Later on in verse 9, Paul makes the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. And then in verse 12, he talks about people who have the law, referring to God's law in the Old Testament. And all of this leads us to understand that the you in verse 1 is in the first instance the Jew. The Jew who is presumptuous. The Jew who presumes on the God who continues to restrain sin because of his kindness, tolerance and patience. But it's a mistake to presume on that. The reason for this is that God is providing time for repentance, not to pass judgments, but to turn to God. At the moment, we only see the partial judgment of God in the world, and the Jew might think that he is storing up treasure for themselves in heaven, but the reality is that they're storing up wrath against themselves for the day of judgment by their refusal to repent. These are very strong words, and we see here how, how bold Paul is in preaching the gospel. I mean, he really isn't ashamed of the gospel as he speaks of God's inescapable judgment. Paul is very bold on this point with the Jews, who are passing judgment on others.
The second paragraph is uh, in verses 6 to 11. So let's remind ourselves uh, what that says. So Romans chapter 2 verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now, this paragraph elaborates on the, the righteous judgment of God in uh, verse 5. Now, the main point occurs at the beginning in verse 6, and it's repeated again at the end in verse 11. Namely, that God will judge every person impartially, assessing each according to the same standard works. And the verses that are sandwiched between the main point in verse 6 and verse 11 illustrate the two possible outcomes of this judgment. Eternal life or God's wrath. Now it's interesting to notice that Paul applies the, the Jew first and then the Greek sequence at the end of verse 9. It's a sequence... Uh, it's the same sequence that we saw back in chapter 1, verse 16, with regard to salvation. And it's a sequence he now applies to judgment in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And it's really here that Paul brings into light the Jew as the hidden target of his argument. In other words, Paul uses the same phrase that maintained the priority of the Jew as a recipient of salvation to assert the same priority in judgment. Now, do be aware that some of us can read uh, this paragraph and be a little bit jittery because we think that Paul risks undermining the doctrine of salvation by faith alone and introducing some kind of salvation by works. Now, we, th we think that because that's the issue that we can come to the passage with. But Paul is simply not discussing the issue that we're concerned about. The issue about whether we can be saved by good works or not. Paul is only making the point that God is just in his judgments. God gives us what we deserve by what we do and that includes those who pass judgment. God's not impressed by Jew or Greek, um, by, uh, by Jew or Gentile, by Greek or barbarian. He has no favourites, but makes his judgments based on what people have done. And although God's fairness in judgment is a good thing, Paul's point here is it doesn't give anyone grounds for optimism. But rather God is the God who has no favourites and he will judge each person according to what they have done. Well, at this point, we get to the third section in chapter two, verses 12 to 16. And let me, uh, let's remind ourselves uh, of what that says 
in verse 12 and 13. So Romans 2, 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. At this point, Paul talks about the law. Now, the law here is not referring to the law of the land, but referring to God's law, in particular, the Mosaic law. And this is clear from verse 14, where he speaks of the Gentiles not having the law. Paul anticipates that the Jews who had the law, that that would be an excuse, a comfort in the light of God's judgment. And Paul explains in verse 13, that it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, owning a copy of the law is not the same as fulfilling the law. Owning a copy of the law is no comfort in the coming judgment because the judgment is based on what you have done and not on what you know. God's concern is obedience and not whether you have the law. And it's interesting that Paul goes on to talk about the Gentiles who do not have the law in verses 14 and 15. And even though they do not have the law, well, they still have a conscience, a basic awareness of right and wrong. In Paul's words, the righteous requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Sometimes it will condemn them when they do wrong behaviour, and at times it will affirm them when they do what is right. And Paul's point seems to be that although the Jew might think that he or she is a cut above the rest because they have the law, they are wrong to exaggerate the difference between those who have the law and those who don't have the law. Because there's a sense in which both have the law. There is not a fundamental distinction between the types of knowledge that they have. In this way, they're in the same boat and under the same judgment. Both Jews and Gentiles, that is, the whole world, is under the judgment of God. This is where this, this whole argument is going. Well, we began by exploring the idea of reading religious people for Jews and religious books and practices for the law. Paul's point would then be, don't think your religion can help you. Don't be religious, that's not going to help. There's no escape from the judgment of God in religion. Paul's point then is a warning against religion. But we've seen how the significance of being Jews is that it is to them who receive the promises of God. It's a position of privilege. Yet Paul has argued that they are under the judgment of God. God gives people their just deserts, and the Jews did not keep the law they had received. And so the argument becomes this. If the Jews won't escape the judgment of God, how much less will the Gentiles escape? If the ones with the promises 
Well, if they won't escape the judgment of God, how much less will those who do not? That would be, that would be the argument to make. This isn't an argument against religion. This is an argument that will conclude with the whole world being under the judgment of God. And therefore, a whole world in need of the salvation from God. But we're not quite there yet, and so you'll have to come back next week. Let's pray, and then I'll open it up to any questions or comments that you might have. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the boldness and clarity with which Paul speaks of your gospel. We thank you that he uh, is at pains to point out the problem of the world, that Jew and Gentile alike stand under the judgment of God. And it's only when really that that is sunk in and has become clear that he's ready then to provide the solution, the salvation that's available through the coming of uh, your son for us and our salvation. And Father, we do uh, pray that we'd be slow to try and make the Bible relevant, that it, it is relevant because it is reality. Uh, please forgive us when uh, we seek to read it in a uh, human-centered way, but rather help us to enter the storyline of the Bible, to see this uh, Jewish and Gentile distinction, and to appreciate the argument that if the ones with the promises, that they will not escape your judgment, how much less us. And therefore I pray we would lean in and pay attention and be clear when we get to Romans chapter 3 and about the solution that you have provided. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Okay, so this is the time I mentioned for you to ask any questions, make any comments. You can use the live chat and tech team will demonstrate by putting a cue in the chat. It appears just like that. And if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, if you put a cue in the chat, then that lets everyone know that there is one on its way. <coughs> and we will wait patiently for you because there's a little bit of a delay between uh, these things. Um, so by all means, far away. And we also have a snail mail question from Team Tech. Okay, let me start with uh, Nathan's question, which says, is Paul trying to break down the Jew-Gentile distinction in this new phase of redemptive history, or is he clarifying it? This is why I want to ask you, what are you thinking? <laughs> um, is Paul trying to break down the Jew-Gentile distinction in this new phase of redemptive history, or is he clarifying it? 
Um, yeah, I'm intrigued to know why I've asked that. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's worth saying that Ferraris, the Jew-Gentile distinction, is just not something, if, you, you know, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's just going to be a foreign idea. But it is, it's a well-established distinction in the world of the Bible. So I think when Paul is talking Jew and Gentile, you know, he's, he's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a way of thinking about the world that would be familiar um, at the time. And so in that sense, it's a kind of a bit of a slightly odd thing for us because we first of all got to go back into that, um, that part of redemptive history and understand this distinction which in many ways Paul just takes for granted because that's how people are thinking about it. Um, now, his argument here is, I think he's, 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 he's having to work with this because the two groups of people are engaging with his gospel in slightly different ways. And what he's wanting to do is to bring a unity in that basically both Jew and Gentile are in the same boat under the judgment of God and therefore his gospel God's gospel will be the solution for both Jew and Gentile so in many ways I think Paul is wanting to provide a unity to the church that's made up of both Jew and Gentile so though there is a distinction in many ways the distinction is um, um, the word um it, it's not something ultimately he's going to run with because there is one church that's made up of jew and gentile but it's going to be interesting because it's such a big issue that when we get to chapters like romans 14 i think there's going to be this whole issue of well look the jews have got all of these religious festivals and um uh food laws and actually it's going to take time for them to adjust uh, to this new phase of redemptive history and therefore there's instruction for both Jew and Gentile Christian as to how to be patient with one another, how to um, um, go forward in this new phase of redemptive history, just bearing in mind it's going to take time for the whole thing to work out. So I think at the end of the day I think Paul's going to say there is no distinction because Jew and Gentile alike are under sin and therefore in need of the one gospel. It's not like two track. But because as he in the phase he's in, it's such a big distinction. Um, it, it, it just is the it is the it is the um, it is the issue that he has to deal with. Um, and therefore, you know, as we go through, there's just going to be so much about Jew and Gentile and about that that relationship. So Okay, I've got a thumbs up from Nathan. There we go. We can chat more if we like. But it is a peculiar one because I kind of feel like if it's not something you're familiar with, we are having to go back into it, even though then we don't actually stay with it because, like, obviously today, it's not you know it's not a distinction that we're you know we're wanting to make and tell that there's now Jews and there's now Gentiles. It's just that that is the distinction, and therefore that's that's where he's at, and therefore has to run with it. Okay.
I will stop there. There's Nikki's got a question. It hasn't come out yet, either because I need to refresh or because it's a long question or something else. Okay, let's have a look. Oh, just before I look at Nikki's question, just to say, going back to Nathan's comment, is that if there is, again, this goes back to the whole, um, um, the implications that if there is now no distinction within the people of God between Jew and Gentile, it would be very peculiar for us to then go and make distinctions in other groups. So again, we're not trying to think today, well, who are the Jew, you know, who, who's the sort of the, What's the division in the church today? Like Paul's argument is that Jew and Gentile are alike. And therefore, if, if that's what he's saying, it's going to be very peculiar for us to make distinctions within the church because the distinction 2,000 years ago has been put to bed and therefore it would be peculiar for us. So again, that kind of, I think that's how we engage with, with that present day. Okay, Nikki says... Um, in the chat here, since Paul is yet to unpack the gospel, might we take verse seven to be hypothetical? Um, CF three twelve. This may be the wrong question to be asking, as we have seen the main point is impartial judgment. Yes, I think. Um, let's just check. I think I know what you mean. Yes, so I think, I think. Nikki, that that is, you're right that this is the wrong question to be asking um, because, um, again, I think it's just because we're so sensitive to salvation by works that if we get any whiff of it in the New Testament. So I think we, we did, when we looked at James, wasn't it, a few um, weeks ago, um, and if we come to it with our question of, okay, it's salvation by faith alone. Salvation is all of God. Um, even faith is a gift of God, Ephesians 2, that sort of thing. When we read something like chapter 2, verse 7, um, which says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. I say, Paul, why are you saying that? It's just going to confuse people and people will think if you do all the right things, then you'll have eternal life. Um, now, Nikki, you could say, well, actually, it's a hypothetical case. It's an empty set. Bear in mind, his conclusion is in 3.12, all have turned aside together, become worthless. No one is good, not even one. So you could do that. But I think probably the way forward is, is he, he's just not even asking that question. So he's not worried about it because his argument is simply, what is the basis of God's judgment? The basis of God's judgment is just deserts. And that's, and he's just looking at the two, um, he's just exploring the two uh, possibilities of what that, um, of what that looks like. So I think that's all, all that he is, all that he is saying there. Now this is crucial when we get to Romans chapter three, um, in verse 21, because then Paul wants us to uh, reflect on the cross in terms of the justice of God. Okay, and this is when we'll be thinking about uh, penal substitution that in our generation has been 
you know, we've had to contend for. Um, but it's also, I think it's quite a contemporary issue because when it comes to uh, punishment theories, there's all kinds of reasons why people think people should be punished, whether it be a deterrent, whether it be rehabilitative, whether it be a, to keep everybody else safe. But and whilst there may be elements of those in some cases, actually fundamental to punishment is just deserts. Otherwise, the system is, is unjust. And so Paul is saying in verse 6 and verse 11 that basically God shows no partiality. To each, he gives each one according to his works. So that's, he's just saying that's the base of a judgment. So the fact you're a Jew makes no difference. It's, it's what you do. It's not who you are in that sense. So hopefully um, that helps. Um, so I, I think the best thing is to do is just to, although we come to it with our question about um, who's he talking about, I think really it's rather a comment on the character of God and his judgment. No worries. Okay, question from Susie. Would it be possible to explain what it means in verses 15 that their thoughts would accuse or even excuse them? Okay, so, so this is, uh, let me pick it up from verse 15. They show, well, I should go back to verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, whilst their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So just to um, remind us in the argument, I think one thing that's important with Paul is in, in the letters, but like Romans is a good example, is, is just to kind of keep your head as to where the argument is. Why is Paul saying these things? And so just as a recap, Paul is, he's prosecuting the Jews because the Gentiles have already been prosecuted in Romans uh, 1, 18 to 32. So now this is the other, other, other part of humanity. Um, and in particular, he's dealing with the issues that because they have the law, that that may be some advantage. And here he's saying, on the one hand, there's two parts of this argument in 12 to 16. On the one hand, if you have the law, it's not about whether you have the law, it's whether you do it. That's the first point. So it's not about what you, uh, whether you own a copy, but whether you actually execute it, which um, they're not. And if there's one thing you know about the people of Israel in the Old Testament is that they're unfaithful to God. Um, but the second part of the argument, and this is just sort of levels the playing field a bit, is that although the Jews have the law, there is a sense in which the Gentiles, have, in a sense, also have the law. Um, and this is linked to this idea of, of conscience. And there's a sense in which, um, I, I take it, although it's not unpacked here, this really goes back to the fact that everyone is made in the image of God. And therefore, although the Gentile um, is um, part of fallen humanity together with the Jew, 
the image of God in them is still still there, even though it's uh, distorted or, or twisted. Um, and that, and that um, there's a sense in which they still have they still have a law. That's his argument. So I think when you get to verse 15, when it says they show that the work of a law is written on their hearts, that's Paul way, Paul's way of saying it, while their conscience also bearing witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. I think the whole accuse or excuse, if I recall rightly, is just it can work both ways. So obviously if you're doing the wrong thing, then your conscience will bear witness to that that's wrong. But if you do the right thing, then your con conscience bears witness to that 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 is that is right. So I think uh, we, we maybe tend to think that a conscience only works one way to condemn, but it also vindicates depending on what you um, what you are doing. But Paul's point uh, again, it's funny because I think Paul's point isn't okay. Well, this is this is where we need to sort ourselves out. His point is is that actually the the Jew is not a cut above of the Gentile because they have a law so actually they're in the same boat because there's a sense in which both have the law the Jew has the written law from Moses but the Gentile still has um, some sense of uh, what God requires of us um, and ultimately and that, that goes back to the fact that we uh, were made in his image and therefore at some level will still reflect uh, still uh, reflect um, what's required of us. So I think that is what is going on. Hopefully that helps.